You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you ready to talk Padres baseball? We've got you covered. Now is the right time to bring back Padres Social Hour as we await the start of the regular season. Friar Faithful, get ready to sit back, relax, and join the conversation. Now, coming to you from everyone's homes around San Diego and beyond, it's Padres Social Hour with your host, Jesse Agler. All right, welcome back to Padres Social Hour. Everybody, you hope you're having a great time. Uh, I don't even know what I Welcome back to Padres Social Hour, everybody. Hope you're having an okay day. I am Padre broadcaster Jesse Agler. I'm losing it. We're all losing it. It's uh, It's been a long few months, obviously. We are perhaps, maybe, hopefully, getting a little bit closer to having some kind of baseball in 2020. We'll talk a, a little bit about that. Certainly throughout the show today, Padre infielder, who also played some outfield last year. Don't forget, Greg Garcia uh, is going to join us in a little bit. We'll also talk a little bit about Roy Halliday with the author of a new book, uh, about Doc called Doc, Todd Zolecki of MLB.com. And I will be joined throughout the show by AJ Casavell of MLB.com, uh, who, of course, covers the Padres. Good afternoon, Mr. AJ. Hi, Jesse. How are you? Oh, you know, we're doing okay. Uh, let, let me. Uh, okay is the ceiling right about now. That's it. Like, you can't yeah. do better than okay at this point. As long as you're okay, you're okay. But outside of that, it, it's hard to ask for a bit more. Um, I, I think certainly there, there's no place other to start today, though. And it's nice in a way to be able to put aside uh, the realities of the moment uh, to talk some history. Uh, today is the anniversary of, of Mr. Padre's passing, Tony Gwynn. Uh, I guess any excuse, not that we need one to talk about, Tony is good. Um, but I, I think the thing that strikes me, and, and it's, it's fun to be able to have this conversation with you, because neither one of us grew up here. Um, is how many athletes can you think about had the kind of impact on their community uh, that Tony Gwynn did here in San Diego? You talk to fans the way I talk to fans, um, and we've both been here now long enough to, I think, fully appreciate him uh, and what he means here. But boy, oh boy, was this a rare relationship. And I use that word intentionally because it really did appear to be two ways. Yeah, and it's like there's there might not have ever been anyone better in terms when you when you – think of how important he was to the city and to the community and also to the franchise he played for and what he did on the field. But uh, when, when, when you're talking about legacies that are left in sports, sports are about more than what happens on the field. They're about more than just guys going out and hitting 394 or finishing with a 338 batting average. Or, I mean, you can name any of a zillion Tony Gwynn facts that I'm sure have already been named on Twitter. They're about a whole lot more than that. And Tony Gwynn, pretty much exemplified that fact that that you really we don't watch sports only for those numbers and for those accomplishments we watch sports to kind of feel a sense of connection and that's that's what he had with San Diego like you said we didn't grow up here but it was obvious from afar growing up and it was obvious once you got here and became ingrained in the community I've said this a little bit you know I grew up on the east coast like you did I was in south Florida and you know, growing up, you really knew one thing about the Padres. And I was a huge baseball fan. We're talking pre-internet age, you know, dating myself a little bit, you know, for the most part until I was in high school or so. And like, you know, maybe Trevor, you know, later on, obviously was part of it. But like, when you heard San Diego Padres, you thought literally one thing growing up, right? That was Tony Gwynn. 
And you just knew he was like the best hitter in baseball. And that's almost all you needed to know, I think, about the San Diego Padres. And uh, again, you get here and you start to build a better understanding of, of the relationship that he had with everybody. You, you could go to Petco on any given night during a normal year, it feels like, pick out literally any of the random 30,000 people who were in the building. And it's like, they will all seem to have some story about meeting Tony Gwynn or interacting with him or getting an autograph from him or seeing him at the grocery store. I mean, it's, it's just an incredible thing. Yeah. And I only had a few interactions with him, but even I have like that, that story of warmth that you seem to get from everyone. The first time I interacted with him was the day Derek Jeter got his 3000th hit. And we had to, we had to kind of, uh, anyone who was kind of, who was, I was covering the Padres that day. They were in Los Angeles. I was only an intern. I was a 22 year old intern. It was maybe, maybe a month into my internship. And I had to go approach Tony Gwynn to ask him about 3000 hits and what that's like and what the accomplishment means and, and some just really kind of cool baseball questions. But I'm a terrified 22 year old intern asking Tony Gwynn and he could not have been more warm. He could not have been more accommodating. The stories were just awesome. He recalled that day to a T and yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, today is a sad day, but the legacy of Tony Gwynn, I mean, it, it, it will never die. It's just so, it's just so prominent everywhere you look in San Diego. I love that you have a story as a 22 year old. I think I have a story, my Tony Gwynn story. I was probably 20, maybe 21. Uh, I was at the university of Miami in college and Tony brought the Aztec baseball team that he was coaching uh, to Coral Gables to play the hurricanes. I've told this story before, so bear with me. It's actually the first time I ever interacted with Tony jr. Who of course uh, I'm happy and, and blessed enough to be able to work with now. And uh, you know, you're covering college baseball doing play by play on the campus radio station. There's not usually a lot of attention paid uh, to what you're doing, but I was so excited because like this hall of fame player was going to be there and I was going to have the opportunity to kind of be around him. Uh, Canes, by the way, swept that series, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and um, so, you know, first day of the series, I bring my little recorder uh, down to the dugout during batting practice. And I want to get my pregame show interview with Tony Gwynn, because when am I ever going to have an opportunity to interview him again? You know, I'm thinking as a college kid and, you know, normally, again, for these games, there's no media coverage there whatsoever because it's regular season college baseball. And uh, I get down to the dugout and literally every news station in town is there. Every newspaper has multiple reporters there. For that exact reason, Tony Gwynn is there. So the dugout is like a madhouse as opposed to, you know, the week before against Georgia Tech or whoever. There's not any media there at all. So I'm kind of like sheepishly, you know, kind of hanging back in the group. You know, again, I'm 20 years old. I don't have like kind of confidence or anything like that. Sort of looking through, trying to get, you know, an opportunity to ask for the interview. Finally, you know, the, the media goes and finishes what they're doing with Tony because batting practice is about to start for the Aztecs. So I kind of shrug my shoulders like, all right, I'm not going to get to have you know this opportunity. And Tony says to me, uh, hey, were you waiting to talk to me? And I said, yeah, but, you know, I know BP is starting. And he goes, that's okay. Have a seat. And, you know, doesn't that tell you everything? And, and yeah, it's that's the kind awesome. of story that everybody has. And sat there. We did the interview for the campus radio station pregame show. Think about that. Literally nobody heard it, I'm sure. Maybe my parents. And uh, that was like everything I think you ever could know about Tony Gwynn. So that was my run in 3000 miles away in Coral Gables, Florida and, you know, 2003 or whatever it was. But again, I think that that tells the whole story. Yeah. I mean, well said. I mean, and, and the thing is you have a story. I have a story. Everyone has one of these stories and just, just the warmth that clearly exuded from Tony was, is, is, 
it, the stories are not about the fact that he hit 394 in 1994 or the fact that he had 319 straight seasons. That's all in the background when we talk about who he was and what he meant to San Diego. And that's, that's to me, the coolest part of it all. That's a great point. You know, the fact that he didn't leave, you know, the opportunities were there. The fact that he was as involved in the community as he was, the fact that he's a Padre for life, um, all of that supersedes the numbers and the numbers were extraordinary. You mentioned some of the crazy tweets and, and you know, stats that we see. We pulled some because I, I will never get tired of these. I'm sorry. Uh, this one. Here you go. Tony Gwynn batted 300 or more in every season, but his rookie year, giving him a record 19 consecutive seasons. Perfect number uh, yeah. above 300. I know a lot of these are familiar to fans, but maybe not. He only struck out three times in a game once. You think about that in the context of today's game, AJ. It is literally laughable. I'm pretty sure he got the go-ahead RBI on a ground. Now, this I need to fact-check this, and I'll do it when we get to our interview, our first interview. But I think he got the game-winning RBI on a ground out in that game too, which means that even in the game that he struck out three times, which everyone does in Major League Baseball today, he put the ball in play when it counted and got the run home and ended up winning the game for the Padres. So it's just like that. that that's just the perfect, I think, Tony story that, that the only time he struck out three times, he still won the game by making contact. Yeah, that's great. We have any others? I think we have a couple more, maybe. Uh, all right, there you mentioned that, hitting 394 in 1994. Uh, and in a two-strike count, all he did was hit 397. That's another one laughable uh, when you consider today's day and age when nobody seems to do anything with two strikes. Uh, over the course of his career with two strikes, 20 years, a 302 that's wild. average. I think that that's probably my favorite one because, like, I, I – I know we don't have data on every count for every hitter in history. We, I think it started maybe in the 80s or 70s. But I think Wade Boggs is second at like 262. He's 40 points better than anyone else with two strikes. That's incredible. Anyone else in baseball. The gap between Wade Boggs and whoever is 40 points below him is there's probably thousands and thousands of hitters. And then the gap between number two and number one is the same between Wade Boggs and Tony Gwynn. Yeah, like you said, it tells you everything you need to know. Do we have any more or is that it? I think that was the last one. Those are fun, and I know there's a million of them about those Braves guys in particular never striking out against them and that kind of thing. Um, you know, Maddox yeah. didn't get him out. It just goes on and on. Cannot uh, get enough of that stuff, certainly. So thinking about Tony Gwynn uh, today on the anniversary of his passing and, and obviously his entire family, including uh, our colleague, our buddy, uh, Tony Gwynn Jr., as for the here and now, no real news today in terms of the 2020 season other than, um, and I'm going to oversimplify perhaps here a little bit, a lot of the national media kind of turning on Rob Manfred a little bit. I don't know if turning on is the, the right word. Maybe that's overstating it a little bit, um, but very different than you know what we saw a quarter century ago, which was really, I think, the last time you've had this sort of acrimony uh, surrounding labor negotiations in Major League Baseball. Um, you know, you're getting guys like Ken Rosenthal and Jeff Pass and really establishment guys who, you know, have a lot of sources inside of the MLB front office on the ownership side and everything like that saying, Hey Rob, you know, it, it's time to figure something out. Uh, this is from Ken Rosenthal's story in the athletic today. Uh, what he wants now, meaning Manfred, according to sources is to stop bickering with the union, start negotiating and reach an agreement that will bring the sport at least temporary order. I mean, my response to that would be like, why did we wait until June 16th? But I guess better late um, than never. It was a really ugly day yesterday in terms of the words flying back and forth between the two sides. Maybe I'm hopelessly naive and optimistic. AJ, I, I still get the sense they are trying to get together, even if it's behind the scenes, even if it's with a scowl, uh, to try and figure something out. There's an awful lot on the line right now. 
Yeah, and I've been optimistic throughout too, but you can't, you still can't look at kind of what was going down yesterday and, and not feel, not have that optimism knocked down at least a, a peg. Um, I would, I would hope that there's still, I mean, both sides have so much invested in, in a season happening, regardless of the finances, regardless of, of who makes what money. There's, there is such a cry for baseball, and there's so many people out there that love it and want to see it very badly that both sides have to, in my, in my view. And like you, like you said, I hope I'm not being hopelessly naive, but both sides have to get something worked out. I asked this question to the guys yesterday on the show. I'm curious your take. Do you think if they uh, magically came to an agreement sometime in the next couple of hours, like is, is real damage done or, or we're still in a period where it'd be like, okay, we, we can kind of all move forward here? I don't know the answer to that, and I, I would I would hope that it's not because if there's an agreement, that means there's baseball. We also don't know maybe the lingering effects of what this agreement has on the next collective bargaining agreement in the year and a half. But I would think that once there's baseball, especially if baseball's earlier or at the very least not any later than the other sports returning to the field, we can kind of set that aside and maybe look forward to a season. And there will be the storylines that come along with a baseball season plus the storylines that come along with all the health and safety procedures of and and the differences in a weird potential 2020 season. And so I, I, I always err on the side of optimism and on the side of, Hey, if there's baseball, it'll be a good thing. And we will, I mean, for whatever harm has been done with these negotiations, it will be superseded to what extent, I don't know, but it will be superseded by the fact that we have baseball to play. And quite frankly, I think if it's a shorter season, if it's 70 games, all of a sudden we have an interesting race or an interesting kind of dynamic of what's going to happen in a 70 game season. There's lots of things to talk about that are not labor negotiations. And that's part of it. It's the fact that we've, I mean, it's, it's the middle of June and we haven't been talking about baseball games. We've been talking about labor for two months, which no one likes to do on any front. We want to be talking about baseball games, but obviously that's a matter that needs to be decided by first and foremost health. And then second, making sure this agreement is in place. Yeah, I, I, I yearn for those days when we were arguing about like the DH and the National yeah. League for this year and how many games they would play and against whom and uh, would they do this version of a season or that version. It'll be great to be able to have those conversations again, hopefully sooner rather than later. Hopefully also, by the way, those conversations are continuing and there have been indications that they have been uh, between the two sides. And, and while the economic argument is sort of the one that's boiled over into the public, um, it does sound like from most of what you read that they are continuing to talk about some of the logistical stuff that they're going to have to figure out. Uh, behind the scenes. That's just, I guess, not as acrimonious. And so it's not spilling over like that. But uh, that's obviously important because you, you can't be putting all of that aside while you're arguing about the money, uh, because then if and when you do figure out the money, you're, you're still going to have to use time up that is uh, pretty valuable and precious at this point. Uh, we talked about, you know, those great Tony stats. This is like the inverse of that, the opposite of that. These are bad stats, um, including today. We've now gone oh, 230 man. days Without MLB games since the World Series ended last October 30th, that is the second longest streak in MLB history. We are off 256 days uh, during the 94-95 strike. I mean, obviously, you know, you're 26 days away from tying it. So if you came to an agreement tonight, you might be able to avoid that number. Um, but I think the odds would be even if there was baseball this year, we will pass 256 days. That's uh, not exactly a banner moment for the sport. No, and, and obviously the majority of that comes down to the fact that we've been struck by a global pandemic, which no one could have foreseen coming. And so uh, ideally, we'd have the sport back as soon as it's safe and as soon as it's ready. If it's, if it's a week or two behind whenever that day is, 
that's that to me is that's not what that week or two is not what's important in the grand scheme as long as as long as we get baseball and we get a baseball where the procedures are in place for people for the people involved the players the coaches everyone else to be healthy through a through a serious pandemic they're uh, continuing to talk as we said um to oversimplify a very very complex thing what i've been saying for the last couple of weeks is it, it seems each side ha- is intractable on one particular issues for the players it's getting their full pro rata so if they play 81 games they want to be paid for 81 games if they play 50 games they want to be paid for 50 games no further discounts in their salary aside from you know the missing games for owners what they've continued to say and that they've appeared to be fully dug in on is that they want the regular season to end September 27 and that the playoffs would end around their normal time towards the end of October uh, because they're worried uh, about the virus kind of coming back when the temperatures dip. Uh, Also, there have been reports, and I've heard this as well, that, you know, the TV networks who have the very valuable postseason packages, they don't want to push things into November either. They've got other stuff uh, on the sports calendar that they want to be showing in November. So those kind of seem like the two uh, main things. So we've sort of kind of given, at least on this show, like each side, all right, those are your two things, and hopefully we can work together on that. Um, But a little bit interesting here, this just from a a little while ago, Bill Shaken of the LA Times, um, he had a phone conversation, I guess, with Dr. Anthony Fauci, um, and he asked him specifically about playing games in October. And, you know, Fauci, you know, obviously as a a virologist and and not anything else, he, he hedged a little bit, but he goes, hey, look, best case scenario, you're not playing in October. It gets cold in a lot of places in October. Um, So that's an interesting thing to kind of be aware of because MLB has said all along they want to work with local and national health officials to try and do this thing as responsibly as possible. And they get Fauci saying something like that. And it's like, oh, man. So uh, I don't know if playing the postseason in September in full is realistic, uh, maybe aspirational to try and get things in as as quickly as possible. But um, I've said 100 times in the last couple of months as we've talked about this, do not look over, do not underestimate the health and safety stuff, I still think that's a very, very complicated thing. Now, I think both sides are on the same page when it comes to that, um, but we probably shouldn't be underestimating the importance of that piece of it, even while the economic stuff kind of grabs the headlines. Yeah, that takes the precedent over everything. And and the economic stuff will grab the headlines because that's what's being debated. That's where there is no agreement, and that's where the news is. That's That's where one side has to give something or the other side has to give something. Both sides are in agreement that we need to keep this as safe and as healthy as possible, and we need to keep the all parties involved involved in the best practices for avoiding contracting the coronavirus. That being said, everyone agrees on that, and so how do we do that? I mean, I don't, I'm not an epidemiologist, but playing later into the later into the calendar may not be something that's so feasible. And so in that regard, the, that 114-game proposal that was initially sent out by the players and, and then probably even the 89-game proposal, I think there are legitimate health reasons you could say, well, let's try and make sure we get this season in before any potential threat has to cancel it or has to shorten it or has to change things. Um, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know where the middle ground on the number of games is, but I think that that will not be a point of contention if – health factors are what limits the number of games because all parties involved want there to be want play want the people involved to be safe. Yeah. So, all right, that's kind of the update on everything going on right now, including that was sort of the latest piece of news, if you want to call it that, uh, to come out as far as baseball 2020 goes. Uh, again, like you had a lot of those, you know, national writers kind of urging Rob Manfred back to the negotiating table earlier today. We'll see what happens. 
Uh, I would guess there's going to be some kind of significant action in the next 24, 48 hours. Not to say there will be a definite conclusion to the thing, but they got to get moving. I know we've been saying that for weeks, but I guess every day it becomes that much more important. Uh, I'm going to turn the page away from that. We got Greg Garcia coming up uh, in a little bit. Always nice to check in with the Padre infielder, local guy, one of just, uh, you know, those good dudes. It's always good to catch up with him. Um, but I had the opportunity yesterday to talk to Todd Zolecki, who covers the Phillies for MLB.com. He's got a new book out, and the book is called Doc. And it is about Roy Halladay. Uh, I don't know how many folks out there watched the ESPN special, the documentary about him a few weeks back, um, but it was heartbreaking. Um, not only his tragic passing, but uh, kind of some of the things that led up to that and what he was going through in his life. I think for a lot of us, we saw Roy Halladay as, uh, you know, the ace of the Blue Jays and a big piece of those great Philly teams of the early 2010s, um, but obviously a far more complicated legacy, a lot more going on in his life. And uh, again, the new book, Doc by Todd Zolecki, might make a nice Father's Day gift if you're looking for a good baseball read. I had the chance to talk to him yesterday about the book. Well, Todd, really appreciate you joining us and uh, giving us the opportunity to talk about this book and kind of uh, relive the life and career of, uh, I think, one of the most uh, impactful figures uh, this last generation in baseball. I want to dive into this because as I started thinking about it again, it was sort of fascinating to me is that, you know, Roy Halladay shows up to the Phillies right after, you know, they win a World Series, right after they win two pennants. They don't get back to the World Series with him in that uniform. And yet he captured everybody's imagination sort of during an era in which they were having so much success. So I guess the question is like, how did he do that? I think he did it because he was arguably the best pitcher at the time in baseball. And he basically forced the blue Jays to trade him. And he said, I want to go to the Yankees or I want to go to the Phillies. It has to be one of those two teams. So in the, in the minds of Phillies fans, it was like, wow, this guy wants to play for us. And, you know, Philly kind of has like a little thing going on with New York. Like they feel like, you know, they don't get respect. They're in between, you know, New York and D.C. So to have Roy Halladay want to come to Philadelphia, it was like, oh, my gosh, this guy is amazing. And then he throws the perfect game in May of 2010. And then in his first postseason start, the very reason that he wanted to come to Philly in the first place, he throws the second postseason, uh, second no-hitter in postseason history. And so – from right then and there, like his, his legacy in Philly was secured and, and people to this day, I mean, they just, they just gush over the guy. They love him here still. Todd Zolecki covers the fills for MLB.com. The book is called doc father's day coming up. That's a nice little gift, certainly for the baseball dad uh, in your life. I want to go back to the, to the no hitter against Cincinnati in the division series. Uh, you sort of, obviously you're there, you're covering it. You're going back, you're writing the book. The Reds had a very good lineup, kind of an easy-to-forget team if you're from outside of Cincinnati. What did those guys say about him that night? They were just saying that it's, you know, basically they started to just try anything at, at some point. So, in other words, Johnny Gomes during the game early on, he would try to take a pitch or two, but Roy was so good. He said, and I think it was his third and final at bat, he said, uh, I just decided to swing at the first pitch like and just go for it. And he's like, that didn't work for him. Joey Votto had this amazing at-bat in the seventh inning. You know, they're just getting dominated. And so he stepped out twice on Roy uh, in that at-bat. Like, right when Roy was set, he was about to deliver, and Joey Votto calls timeout. And he basically said, I was basically trying to get him so mad at me, so angry at me, he might hit me with the pitch. Uh, he might groove one down the middle, like lose his concentration. But he didn't. It didn't work on him. And, and the funny part about that is, is that Joey Votto said the next year at the All Star game they were together, and, and Roy went up to him and said, 
uh, do you remember when you stepped out there in the seventh inning? And Joey's like, yeah, he's like, I wanted to walk to the home plate and strangle you. I was so mad. <laughs> but he didn't show it, though, which is what made Roy great. He was always so under control when he pitched. But but those are two of the most memorable mo- uh, stories that I remember from that game. Uh, that that, that kind of leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask. His mental approach, the stuff we all know, it's explosive. I mean, it's just some of the best pure stuff, like we said, of the generation. What What made him different between the years? You know, he was he was kind of a mess early on in his career. He was somebody that talked about how every time he went on the mound, he would say, "Okay, I have to go seven innings, three runs or less, seven innings, three runs or less. I have to get that quality start. And then when he would get on the mound, that would the the big picture thing would kind of consume him and he wouldn't even be focusing on the next pitch he was about to throw. And and then he he got he got a hold of the mental ABCs, the, the book by the late great sports psychologist Harvey Dorfman. He started reading that book repeatedly. He read it six times overall during the 2002 season. And then he met Harvey and he became like Harvey's greatest disciple. Like they, they emailed, uh, texted, talked to each other on the phone. And and basically Roy realized the mental side of the game is just as important, if not more important than anything else. So he started focusing on the next pitch. He started preparing in between starts uh, he was always famous for this maniacal work uh, work ethic in between starts, but it wasn't just like this guy loved to run, this guy loves to lift. It was it was part of his preparation process. And in as much like, for instance, the running and the weightlifting helped him build endurance and strength. It was also a, me- a a box he had to check mentally, so he would allow himself to feel comfortable when he got on the mound the next time. Which is kind of crazy when you think about it. You know, he mentioned how great his stuff was, but if he didn't do all that stuff. And if he was facing like the worst team in baseball, the next start, he would not feel good about himself because he would feel like he shortchanged himself. And that that was a part of the book that I really tried to get into because, you know, I'm in, you know, maybe like a high school pitcher or a college pitcher, or a minor league pitcher may could pick up the book, read it and go, oh, this is some of the things that Roy Halladay did. Maybe I can apply this to myself as well. Very interesting. Talking Roy Halladay. The book is docked by Todd Zolecki of MLB.com. As we mentioned, Father's Day coming up on Sunday. You want to pick it up? Amazon, uh, Gar- Barnes & Noble, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, w- was there something, without giving away too much, of course, that maybe you were totally shocked by, surprised by, learning as you, as you researched this, having been around the guy for as long as you were? You know what it was is I, I think the impact that he had on people in and I don't know if that sounds strange or not, but, you know, you know, obviously Roy Halliday, he impacted people, but I, I talked to like a little over a hundred people for this book and I was really impressed, amazed that I talked with people, catchers, you know, pitching coaches, people that maybe only worked with him for a year and a half, like 20 years ago, and they would well up and get choked up talking about him because he had that much of an impact on their lives. You know, a guy that might've caught him 15 times in the 2001 season when he came back from a ball, like saying that this, you know, this is one of the greatest moments of my life was the ability to catch this guy. And, you know, teammates saying how much they loved playing behind him and, and how they just continue to kind of light up when they talk about him. Uh, I think that's kind of a rare thing nowadays to have everybody seemingly on the same page, but, but he would, he had that type of, uh, he had the type of influence on people and he really made a big difference. Obviously as baseball fans, we really only know these guys for the most part, what they're able to accomplish on the field. And with Roy Halladay, as we've learned since, uh, there was a lot more going off in, including a, a tragic finale to the story. Unfortunately, what, what do we know about life growing up for Roy Halladay? 
you know, Roy, Roy was pushed really hard. His dad was a baseball player, not like a minor league player, professional player, but he was a, you know, like a local accomplished player. And, and Roy's dad said, you know what, I'm see if I can make my son into a baseball player. And they worked every day at it growing up. You know, the famous story is that they moved when they were about the third or fourth grade and Roy's dad found a basement that had to be at least 60 feet, six inches long. So his son could throw bullpen sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true that that happened. Uh, but he worked Roy treated baseball growing up almost as a job. It was something he had to do every day. He had to throw a bullpen. He had to take BP in his basement. Uh, he had to, his dad bought the Nolan Ryan's pitching Bible and they basically repeated his workouts, Nolan Ryan's workouts. And this is a 13, 14, 15 year old kid that was doing this every single day. Uh, on one hand, Roy said many times that, you know, without my dad, I, I, I never would have made it to the big leagues on the, on the other side. Uh, he, he felt a lot of pressure because of it. And it was something that he carried with him. Uh, throughout his entire life. And, and then you know, after his playing career was over, you know, Roy made a point to coach his boys differently. So, you know, it's, it's kind of this weird push and pull here. You know, does he make it without being pressed so much as a kid? But, you know, what big picture wise, was it was it the best thing for him? You know, that's 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 a tough question to answer. Talking about Roy Halliday with Todd Zalecki of MLB.com, wrote a book about him called Doc. Uh, you can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org. Uh, lastly, about the accident, uh, and again, tough thing to talk about, and, and I need to write about it extensively in the book, so we don't want to, you know, have too much of the conversation about it. But what well, can you tell us about what life was like for him, kind of, you know, leading up to the accident and, and how things were or were not going? Yeah, you know, I think the part of the book that has resonated with people is is the fact that you know Roy was just like me or you or you know friends of ours that that might be struggling with something. And I talked with uh, Roy's wife, uh, Brandy, about this. And, you know, he was struggling. He was struggling for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, he, he had this really debilitating back injury. Uh, he had started taking painkillers. He developed an addiction to painkillers. The second part is that he was battling depression and, and social anxiety. He wasn't happy with how his career ended. Uh, he wasn't happy with the fact that he couldn't do the things that he wanted to do. Uh, so he went in, he was, he was trying to get help. He went into rehab twice and, and, you know, certainly tragic regardless, but even more so because he, if I, when I talk with Brandy, I talk with Roy's family, they thought he was slowly getting better. Uh, he wasn't there yet, but he was slowly getting better. Uh, and then, you know, certainly, unfortunately, uh, you know, he never got to get past that point and see like where, how far he could have gotten past the addiction and the, and the depression and, and then, you know, seeing kind of where his career would have taken off from there. His post, his post pitching career would have taken off from there. Mm. Roy Halladay, as we said, one of the great talents of his generation. The new book, Doc, by Todd Zalecki of MLB.com. Todd, really appreciate you visiting with us, giving us a little bit of info on the book. Hope some folks are able to pick it up and enjoy, kind of get the rest of the story of uh, Roy Halladay. Thanks, man. Thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it. All right, there you go. Thanks to Todd Zalecki for joining us. And it looks like a really fascinating book. Obviously, as we said, a sad ending. Bring in uh, AJ again. Uh, my takeaway from all of that is something that I feel like as fans, we've gotten much, much better at in the last however many years, which is always remembering these guys, these players, no matter how much money they make, no matter how famous they might be, they are like all of us human beings. I And I can't stress that enough. And I, I do think we've gotten better at it, maybe because players have been allowed to express themselves a little more just by the way the world works now, by the way social media is. I I can't stress that enough, though, that that when you're sitting on your couch yelling at a guy for striking out on a pitch in the dirt, that's I mean, that's to some extent, that's fine. That's why we watch the game. We we want our team to do well. But that guy is a person and a human. And, and we all need to, I think, remember that and could do better to remember that 
at the same time. And, and allow me to just add that um, Todd is a fantastic writer and I am very much looking forward to reading this book because I, I can only imagine how well he puts this story into its proper context. That's, I mean, he, Todd's always been kind of someone that I looked up to working at, at MLB.com, obviously. And, and the way he tells stories is one of the biggest reasons why. So I am also very much looking forward to, to reading this. It's amazing. You know, it's in preparation for the interview, I was going back over, you know, some of the Roy Halladay numbers and stuff. You see the postseason no hitter here uh, against the Reds and uh, only the second one of those in history. Um, and the amazing thing is like he's one of these last guys who had, you know, a handful or two of complete games every season. Yeah. Right? It's something we just don't see anymore. Yeah, there's a couple still out there. You know, you can put Scherzer, Verlander sort of in that mix. Uh, Bumgarner, although he sort of appeared to be perhaps on the the back end of everything, Kershaw similarly. Um, it, it's like I don't know if it's going to be another five years. You're not going to see numbers like this anymore, and it hasn't been that long since Roy Halladay was pitching. Yeah, I think he might have been the last of the guys that racked up complete games every season. I don't. I mean, obviously, it wasn't the level of a Randy Jones or whoever else way back when, but he like you could count on Roy Halladay for four or five, or even even just a couple in a down year. Uh, he was a different kind of pitcher in that way in the sense that you gave him the ball and you're just like all right yeah go out there and win us the game from one through nine and and uh, there's been a lot of talk about about how important wins are and whatever well part of the reason they've gone down in importance is because guys don't go the full game and and Roy Halladay even when he was pitching I mean he's he's probably known best for for what he did on those Phillies teams but those Blue Jay teams were not really good and he still won a lot of games with them and so he's he was one of my favorite pitchers to watch I think uh, one of the things that I've always just kind of been fascinated with when it comes to pitchers is kind of like who was the guy who was like the guy of his era. Like if you go back and look, it was probably it was like Greg Maddox in the early 90s and then Randy Johnson, Pedro. I think Roy Halladay was the guy. He was the best pitcher in baseball, maybe from like 06, 07 through that that Phillies run until probably Clayton Kershaw took the mantle. Uh, he was he was incredible. And that 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 I think it was it was 2011 when he had the the no hitter and the, and the perfect game. That was just, I mean, he was just, you couldn't touch him. It was funny too, because like I, in my head assumed he was on at least one of the pennant teams for the Phillies, but he showed up after the fact and obviously did his part uh, with the no hitter against the Reds, but never pitched in a world series. A lot of years in Toronto, two phenomenal years in Philadelphia, and then kind of uh, petered out towards the end. You heard about the injury and everything else like that. So anyway, uh, a guy that was just an absolute thrill to watch, um, unfortunately in a way, he's one of those guys that was buried in a smaller market in a different market on bad teams for a long time, probably didn't get the respect and appreciation that he would have had he pitched somewhere other than Toronto, all those great years. Uh, but we know that story well here. Uh, unfortunately, good book, looking forward to, uh, checking it out from Todd, as you said, uh, does a phenomenal job. All right. So a little Roy Halliday and, uh, time now for our daily KBO sadness report. As we check in on our KT Wiz, you see Vic and Dory, the mascots, they look very happy there. Um, and there's a reason for that. Uh, the Wiz tried to blow it again last night, but they came up with a victory, which was very good. Uh, they gave it up uh, in the ninth inning to the uh, SK Wyverns, uh, but ended up winning in 10. So that was nice. Uh, bullpen has been an issue most of the year for the Wiz. It was an issue again last night, but they were able to take game one of the series, which we're very appreciative of. Uh, they got a couple in the top of the ninth inning to take the one-run lead. Mentioned they gave it up in the bottom of the ninth and then got one in the tenth uh, to hold on for the win. So it was a good night for the Wiz as uh, they get back on track a little bit. One of the other things uh, we have here um, is is I don't really know what it is, but it involves the two mascots, uh, Vic and Dory, for the, for the Wiz. So this is Vic. 
And he is apparent again, I don't know the context, um, but he appears to be putting a coffee together, maybe a cold brew. Um, obviously difficult as a mascot. I like his wizard hat. He's got some claws, not wearing a mask, which is a little disappointing. He's got the little thing. You don't well, want he, he is wearing a mask. Let's be, that's I mean. fair. That's, fair. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fair point, <laughs> but it looks like he's, oh, there, there's a hot one and a cold. So he's, I think he's got one for Dory, which is nice. He's all thumbs. You can tell that. And there you go. That's it. I, again, I have no idea what this is, but Cole, who's our, uh, our kind of producer, director, technical whiz, pun intended. Oh, look at you. You put that together for us. Yeah, that was a big win for me last night because my brother is an SK Wyverns fan. Oh. Them. I actually, so I have actually have a story about last night. If you want to talk a little baseball for a minute and a half, like actual yeah. baseball strategy. I turned on the game. I, I, I have watched them on the Twitch stream and scroll ahead to like the seventh inning usually. But when I scrolled ahead, because it went to extras, it was in the ninth, so I knew something was going to happen, so I just kept it on, watched it. The Wiz took the lead, but I knew they were going to blow it because there was still an hour left or whatever. But I actually watched, then they then they took the lead in the top of the 10th, and the bottom of the 10th was actually exciting because I they were either going to win it there or they were going to lose it there, and I saw the end mark on the on the stream. Uh, they were up, they, they put the first two men on base in the top of the 10th and then bunted the runner over. And I'm usually not a proponent of bunting, but I kind of had a thought, like, it seems like the KBO is more of a contact league. And if you look up, if you look up the, the kind of run expectancy matrix, like how, how many runs you're going to score if you have second and third one out versus first and second no one out, like I think my opinion on bunting might be a little different league to league because sure enough, the next guy hit a chopper, a slow chopper to third base. Third baseman was playing semi back and had to back up on it because it was a high bouncer and he got the out at first base, but the run scored. And so I just thought that was kind of interesting. My the strategy is a little different, maybe. I don't I don't really yeah, know. Quick. I think they might have done that here, but I might have just been a little more opposed to it here. And so I also, as I was watching this and thinking this, thinking like, man, I just want to have like bunting conversations because I really, I really just missed that aspect of baseball or just, it, just the strategy part. It's not a strikeout league. So I think you're definitely onto something. And the reality is, as much as we've all sort of gone against bunting in the last 15 years at this point or whatever it is. Like there's a reason it was conventional wisdom in like the fifties and the sixties um, because it was more of a contact game and it did work at times, maybe not as much as they probably thought it did. They still probably did it too much. If you look back at the math that we've done now, but like, it wasn't like today's game where everything was strikeout or home run, in which case it really doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And, and I think there are certain guys depending on who's up, depending, I, I couldn't tell you like where the whiz were in their order or whatever. I was just <laughs> kind of casually watching it while I was doing some other work. But, I mean, also, I mean, you got, also got to factor in the fact that this bullpen could give up six runs in any inning. So part of me was a little opposed yeah. to giving away outs. But uh, big win for the Wiz. I believe they're two games up on the Wyverns, even though they're in seventh or eighth place, whatever it is. As long as they're ahead of the Wyverns, we're in good shape. Go Wiz. Wyverns are in ninth, uh, the Wiz in eighth, and the Hanwha Eagles are in tenth. They had snapped their 18-game losing streak. Uh, the Hanwha Eagles the other night, they actually won two in a row. Uh, then they lost again yesterday. So, so they're in trouble. So congrats to the Wiz. Good job. Um, and, and I'm glad Vic and Dory got their coffee fix. This was cool too. You know, obviously fans still not going to games uh, in Korea uh, makes all the sense in the world, right? So they're kicking around ideas. We've seen drive-in movies, drive-in concerts uh, at Peco Park and other places already here. And so they're trying to come up with some viewing parties, um, which will be pretty cool. So that's one of those ideas they're kicking around. Um, you know, it's interesting because we've seen this with the conversation around soccer as well in England, you know, like they're worried about fans coming to the stadiums, 
to congregate, you know, when these games without fans are going on, they don't want them tailgating or just, you know, having a pint outside of the, the grounds or anything like that. This is a very wise alternative to try and keep people uh, as safe as possible. I like, by the way, there's like a random 1996 Corvette in the middle. I just noticed, but um, this is kind of a cool thing. Give you like a little bit of a sense of, of community for these things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't know what the answer will be here when we have sports to watch here, but the safer, the better. And that's certainly a a pretty solid, safe solution here. I I heard a story about Germany uh, a couple weeks or a couple weeks ago, I think, in soccer where uh, there's one of one of the stadiums is close to a forest. And so a bunch of the fans all showed up and just hung out in the forest, all socially distant, but they all sung their songs or whatever. You can hear them inside the stadium. Uh, They couldn't see the game. They couldn't do anything. The police came and said, hey, you know what? We can't do anything because you're all socially distant. You're all doing what you're supposed to be doing. And they just sang for a couple hours. And so even though they couldn't see the game. So whatever the answer is, let's make sure it's safe. And let's make sure we can still be fans of the sports that we love. Just stay five trees apart from one another and you'll be just fine. That's pretty cool. It's a different world, uh, different uh, creative yeah. ideas coming up, and uh, we'll take what we can get. All right, AJ's done a great job during this pandemic uh, without baseball games, keeping us entertained, still coming back to Padres.com multiple times per day for the good stuff, uh, including these weekly lists. Is this the last one, by the way? I believe we're going GMs next week. I don't oh. know what I don't know what happens if if there's an announcement of a season or where, where things might shift. We might push that back, but we're going to go GMs some point i haven't even started really thinking through that so uh just be prepared for that list at some point not necessarily in its usual time slot that being said managers is the penultimate list all right so we got managers now what do we got walk us through it well bochi's number one and i think it's it's it, it's there's really not much debate dick williams was obviously like for the four years he was in san diego i mean the padres were the padres were a winning team or they 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 were 500 or above in every single season Dick Williams is at the helm. So you give him credit for that. But I think Bruce Bochy, the two most successful eras in Padres history were that kind of 96 to 98. And then the, like right after they opened Petco 2004 to 07. And Bruce Bochy was at the helm for both of those minus that 07 season. And kind of was almost the architect of bringing it back from after the 98 season when they lost a few of their stars to getting it back on track and getting the Padres back to a couple consecutive division titles. So for me, he's... He's the obvious number one, and I think Dick Williams is the obvious number two. When you, I mean, they're the two pennant-winning managers in San Diego. Um, and then Jack McKeon, we only had three managers. Obviously, managers, there's a, there's a shorter list of them than there are guys at different positions, and so we did our top three. Jack McKeon, obviously known best for his, I mean, he will, he will almost certainly be on my general manager's list next week, probably higher than number three. But, I mean, he for those two years, he was the Padres manager. He took over in 88, and the Padres were a... I want to say something like 16 or 17 games above 500. And then the 89 Padres team, probably one of the more underrated in franchise history. Who knows if there's a four team or five team playoff, whether they make it or not. Like maybe we look at them a little differently and and remember them a little more fondly. They end up losing out to the giants, finishing second by three games, but that's with only two teams making the playoffs. And so those are my, those are my top three managers. And I don't think, I, I mean, I was honestly, kind of happy that we did a a top three list because i don't think there's really any debate for those three now if you go to number four there's all sorts of i i I don't know who it could be do do you value bud black do you value greg riddock for what he did in a shorter time i don't know the answer to that but one two and three for me are pretty obvious 
Yeah, I saw in your honorable mentions, you had Buddy and Riddock in there and the Colonel, uh, Jerry Coleman, for his one year uh, at the helm. More about just sort of the, the circumstance and the story as much as anything, I imagine. Yeah, Colonel Coleman, obviously a legend, but maybe not for his managerial skills. May I think they went 73 and 89 that season. And I mean, look. It's it's one of the it's one of the more fun stories in Padres history, and obviously he's one of the most beloved figures. I think I, obviously we're we're honoring the legacy of Tony Gwynn today among the most beloved people in the franchise's history. Jerry Coleman's right up there as well, and so he deserves a shout out whenever we can get him one, even if it's on a top managers list that he probably doesn't belong on. Love it. Love it. All right. The uh, top three managers in Padre history. Go read and argue and vote. Uh, Padres.com along with uh, AJ Casavell. Uh Let's see. Greg Garcia, Padres infielder. It was a fun story last year. It really was. Um, you get the hometown guy coming in. You know, he said at the time he had been uh, put on waivers by the Cardinals, the team that had drafted him, the only organization he'd ever played for. Uh, and I remember the story well, you know, two winters ago at this point, he said he got a call from his agent. And his agent was sounding all excited. And he was like, what are you happy about? Like, I got put on waivers, man. I'm bummed out. I'm not going to be a Cardinal anymore. And uh, then when his agent told him he was going home to San Diego, he understood clearly why his agent was as excited as he was. Uh, And then Greg went out and set career highs in an awful lot of categories last year. He played a ton in 2019 for the Padres, and he had a great time doing it. A fan favorite for a lot of good reasons. We had the opportunity to catch up earlier today. Greg, good to see your face. Uh, it's funny how much I think, uh, speaking for myself, but probably a lot of fans as well, we just miss seeing you guys. Like, we get so used to it during the summer months, and now it's uh, it's a few and far between thing, unfortunately. So, uh, first of all, how are you? You and the family hanging in, everything like that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a strain for us. You know, we, we miss being down at Petco playing in front of the fans and stuff like that. So, uh, it's definitely a little different. Um, but uh, family-wise, everyone's good here. Hannah, my wife, is doing great. Olivia's doing great. My daughter, so... She actually just turned two uh, last week, so I had a little mini uh, get-together for that, and it's just been uh, fun hanging out with them. Are you are you still dominating Olivia on the basketball court? That was one of the great Instagram videos we've seen in the last several months. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, you know what? We haven't been out there to play. They, they close all those parks and stuff like that, so Olivia's lucky. She hasn't had to, to take that beating <laughs> on the basketball court lately, but uh, that was definitely fun to do that in Arizona. We had a good time out there. Hey, if we're looking for silver linings, I mean, like you said, you got to be around for a birthday. That's probably not something that would have happened at that level uh, had this been a normal year. Uh, so what what else have you guys been up to to take advantage of the extra family time? Yeah, really just uh, just trying to do my part around the house. I mean, it's it's amazing how much Hannah does for our family and, you know, especially when we're leaving on these 10 game road trips and things like that. So I'm just trying to do my part to try to help out and make make sure the ship is is running as smooth as possible. But yeah, like you said, it, it was great to be home for her, her birthday. You know, I got to be home for mother's day, which usually doesn't, you know, that's a toss up. If you're going to be home for that, uh, looks like we might be home for father's day. So that'll be, you know, exciting, but yeah, just trying to soak in as much family time as we can. I mean, you, you don't really realize how much you're missing in, until like right now, you know, being able to be at home and, and hanging out with Hannah and Olivia, it's, uh, it's something I'm not taking for granted. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to cherish it for sure. Very nice. Let, let's talk some baseball on the field. How was year one as a Padre for you? Got a lot of action in 2019. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, I had a blast uh, all the way from everybody in the organization. Uh, just coming over here, being the new guy, I was I was basically welcomed with open arms and uh, just really enjoyed getting to know my teammates and just bonding uh, on a friendship level and, and teammate level. And 
you know, obviously the season didn't turn out how we, how quite we wanted it to, but um, I think we, we, we made a lot of strides and uh, we grew together as a unit. And I think that's going to pay dividends, um, you know, in the, in the seasons coming and uh, just exciting time to be a Padre and just, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of the team. I saw a comment you made, and I don't know if it was spring training or over the winter, but you said how your joy of playing came back in 2019. Tell us a little bit about that, how that happened and what you meant. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was basically my whole major league career has been kind of coming off the bench, pinch hitting, maybe some spot starts here or there. And uh, that, that's a, that's a role that you're probably going to fail in. And it, it kind of took the joy out of, out of baseball for me. And it, I really started looking at it more like a job and, you know, the business side of it. And I, I kind of lost the love of it and it was how I had to treat it because if you, if you treat it like the game that you played when you were a kid, you won't be able to sleep at night. You know, you're continually going 0 for 1 or not playing or just sitting on the bench and everything like that. But um, this past season in 2019, I was I was able to get out there, you know, four or five days in a row, um, playing a lot of baseball, getting a lot of at-bats. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed competing. I enjoyed being out uh, every day with the boys, kind of grinding it out, you know, grinding out an 0 for 4, knowing that the next day, you know, I can go three for four. And uh, that that's what that's the greatest part about baseball is, uh, you know, you play every day. So um, just getting back to competing every single day really brought the joy back for me. And uh, I, I had a lot of fun last year for sure playing. And I guess the kicker, the cherry on top is the fact that you're doing it in your hometown for the first time as a big leader. How special was that? Oh, man, it was, uh, you know, getting getting put on waivers by the Cardinals and then not knowing where you're going to end up and and to get claimed by San Diego was obviously a dream come true. And uh you know, I, I had such high expectations for what it was going to be like. And I think I surpa- surpassed every one of those expectations from, you know, friends and family getting to watch me play live to, uh, you know, just being on the I, I mean, I, I've been to Padre games at Petco being a fan and now I'm on the field. I remember it really hit home on opening day, you know, listening to the national anthem and then the flyover goes across and I'm looking down at my chest and I'm wearing a Padre jersey. And, you know, you're always thinking about that when you're a kid. Oh, I want to play for the Padres. Never thinking it was going to come true. And for how it, how it happened was uh, really special for me. And I'm really enjoying these years. I've, I've been with the Padres and I, I want to be here for as long as I can. And I'm going to do everything in my power t- to make that happen. I remember reading uh, in the offseason, you spent some time with the Aztec basketball team, too. Big fan. You've been going to games since you were a kid, obviously, uh, over uh, on on campus there. Um, but you got some cool behind the scenes access this winter. Is that right? Yeah, I, I'm lucky enough to know a few of the coaches on, on the staff and uh, they invited me out to go to a practice and and kind of just sit and watch. And I was basically a fly on the wall to watch these guys and. Uh, you know, what Steve Fisher and Brian Dutchers have done with that program is is nothing short of amazing. So I just kind of wanted to see, you know, how they go about their day to day business. And I was so impressed with the practice that they had uh, starting from the film room to breaking down, the uh, you know, the last game to what they could do better to what they what they did good during that game. And it was a very, very much a professional setting and guys were focused and guys were locked in and it was something that I thought could translate to, to the, you know, to baseball, to, to ourselves and the, and the Padres clubhouse and trying to kind of just hold each other accountable, maybe to a higher level. And, you know, you're not trying to put anybody down or anything like that, but just kind of the accountability thing and the vulnerability of, of putting yourself out there. So something that I, I really admired about that, that program. And it was, it was no coincidence that they had such an amazing year. It was uh, terrible to see that they didn't get to play in the tournament because of everything that went on. But, uh, you know, uh, a lot of special things going on over there. 
you mentioned that how, you know, there, there was the article I read about it or the interview, whatever it was, you were really going in some cool detail about the way they would, you know, call guys out in that film session, but kind of in a constructive way. Is the culture of baseball just different? You think in part because there are so many games, you can't do that 162 times, obviously, but you probably can, as you're alluding to, kind of look for opportunities to go out of your way to do that during the year. Exactly. I think because I, I was thinking about that, I was like, can we do this in, in a baseball season? And I think, like you said, it, it's it's probably too much to, to, to sit in a meeting room every single day and then just kind of go over the game before. But what I think can happen is it's just, you know, sit, whether you're sitting at a locker, you know, I locker next to Austin Hedges and, and Hosmer. And, and, if you know, four hours before the game, if we're just going over yesterday's game or even after the game, hey, what? You know what were you, what were you thinking in this situation, or do you think we could have done something better? Whether you're looking yourself in the mirror, what you should always do, or just kind of, hey, what were you thinking in this count? You know, we had a runner on second with two outs. You know, it was the seventh inning, we we're down by one. You know, we're, we need to try to move that guy over. And I think instead of having such a formal setting, what they what they what they do at um, San Diego State, it can be more loose and kind of just you know ebbs and flow of the day. You're you're going into the weight room, you see a few guys, just kind of talk about the game and and talk about the upcoming uh, pitcher or things like that, or things that are going well for you or not. Uh, you know, people call it ball talk or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think that's something that we can, we can do a better job of as a group. And, and I think it'll help us honestly. Yeah, that's really, really cool. It's always neat to hear new ideas kind of coming into baseball because so much, of course, of the sport is just sort of the way it's been for a very, very long time, although changes are coming rapidly these days, it seems. Um, I know it probably seems like 10 years ago at this point, but how is spring training going for you this year? Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't even seem like this year. Yeah, you're right. It was, uh, you know, we were off to a great start. It was, you know, everything that happened was, was real tough. And, but, uh, as a, as a team, I felt like we were coming together. We were moving in the right direction. Um, second year in the, in the organization, I felt a lot more comfortable. You know, I knew the facility, I knew where the weight room was. There was, I knew all the the staff and everything like that. So that made that, that a lot easier for me. And I got to focus more on baseball and, but as a group, I mean, we were we were pitching it really well, playing good defense. Offensively, we were taking really good at bats. And, you know, people are going to say, oh, well, it's just spring training. But I feel like bad teams say that, you know, when you're having a bad spring training or you're you're not pitching well, you're not defending well, you're not hitting well. It's real easy for those teams to say, well, it's just spring training it doesn't matter. But I, I think it does. And I think we we showed it this year that we were, we were going in the right direction and guys were hungry and guys were we're eager, eager to prove, you know, what the San Diego Padres are all about. And we kind of, we kind of talked as a group is it's easy to say it, right. It's easy for me to tell you that we were going to do so many great things this year, but we were just ready to go out there and do it. You know, I think that that was the message we wanted to send to each other was, all right, you know, talk is cheap. Let's, let's just go out there and just let our play kind of speak for our, our us as a team. So, um, you know, we were, we were heading in the right direction and uh, yeah, it was, it, it's just tough what everything that happened. Yeah. Greg Garcia playing for your hometown team and doing things in your home community. Uh, tell us a little bit about the project with USAA that you're involved with uh, helping out the USO here in San Diego. Yeah, I think it was a it was a no brain for me. They asked me to kind of come out and, and, and help this. And, you know, what they're doing is they're basically giving, you know, I think thirty five hundred uh, packages to local military families. And in these care packages, there's, you know, toothbrushes, there's uh, toothpaste, shampoo, razors and basically just doing anything to help out these families. They sacrifice so much for us to, to have our freedom and, and do so much for our country that, you know, it's something nice that the Padres and USAA and are, are doing to help out. And uh, it was kind of a no brand for me. Anytime I can try to help out, do anything I can uh, for, for this community. Um, I'm always, I'm always down to do it. And growing up here too, I'm sure like, you know, you get that special understanding of, of how important the military community is here. 
Oh, uh, there's no doubt. Yeah. Growing up in San Diego, obviously all the military ties. And uh, I think the Padres do a great job of honoring the military, whether it be, you know, the Sunday uh, camo days and everything like that, always having military around the field. And uh, it's always great to meet the, the men and women that serve our country and uh, just can't thank them enough and have a ton of respect for them. All right. Talked about going to Padre games as a kid, uh, talking a lot about Tony today, of course. Uh, just your memories, your thoughts of, of Tony Gwynn as like so many, you know, just growing up as a baseball fan here in San Diego. I mean, the, the guy is just obviously an absolute legend. I mean, uh, on and off the field, he did everything the right way. Uh, it was honestly just a joy to be able to watch that guy play every single day. And and San Diegans, we were we were lucky to have this guy here for, I think, what, 19 years. And he was one of the few guys that didn't really want to go to free agency. He wanted to stay with this team that, you know, he's been with his whole career and, uh, yeah, I mean, he's Mr. Padre, man. I mean, we're we're out there at Petco working, and I see a statue out there in the in the park, and uh, just it brings back a ton of memories. Just an absolute legend, obviously a Hall of Famer, but I think just a better person. I've heard so many stories. Uh, I had a gr- the ground screw, the head ground screw guy, told me a story about Tony. Just a really nice gesture he did for them after they in the '98 uh, World Series, they gave them all you know playoff shares, and Tony took care of some of those guys and. Uh, just the things he does. He, he was just a great human being and um, yeah, some, some definitely a role model for me to look up to. Very nice. Uh, Greg, great to see you. Appreciate you taking a few minutes for us. Uh, get back on the court with your daughter as soon as you get a chance. <laughs> and we hope to see you out at Petco soon too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I can't wait to get back. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Gigi, Greg Garcia, fan favorite for a lot of good reasons. And I uh, hope you enjoyed that conversation with him. Bring AJ Casavell back now before we get out of here today. Um, AJ, I'll go back to something he said about, you know, being a bench player in St. Louis and how difficult that is. The more guys you talk to who fill that role, uh, at least for me, the more I appreciate the guys who are able to do it really, really well because it ain't easy. Yeah. And he does it as well as anyone, I think right now, like AJ's he, he, there you go. You got me. Yeah. So I, I think Greg does it as well as anybody yeah. in terms of, in terms of both what the production and the kind of temperament he has that demeanor that you need and he he i think he said it so many times that like he knows he's never going to make the hall of fame so the pinnacle for him as a baseball person is winning a world series and so his only goal is how can i help my team win a world series what are the things i can do And if that's one play if that's one at bat or if that's a defensive replacement late in the game he has made himself as useful as he possibly can be with the skill set that he has. And that's an extremely useful piece. Plus he does it in a way that I, I think there are some guys on some teams, look, everyone's human. There's some guys who probably wouldn't love being in that role. He genuinely loves it. And that's a useful thing when you're, when you're constructing a clubhouse of 25 players, a lot of whom have egos to have a guy who is willing to accept the role. That isn't the the front and center role and do what Greg Garcia does, which is, an extremely important piece, especially on a National League roster. Yeah, that's exactly right. I alluded in the interview to him playing basketball with his daughter. He put up the video on Instagram, you know, right when things shut down, I guess, at the beginning of the quarantine times. They were still in Arizona, still in Peoria. And his daughter at the time is less than two years old. You know, you heard she just turned two last week. And he's, like, dribbling around her and, like, crossing her over and, like, you know, put his hand in her face after he scores. It was, like, very, very funny. So that was uh, what that reference was all about. Greg Garcia, great dude. And uh, hopefully see him and the rest of the Padres back on the field sooner rather than later. Uh, Before we get out of here, I told you about it yesterday. Padres Blood Drive, the annual summer blood drive, is underway. 
Obviously, things pretty different this year. It is a three-day event now instead of a one-day thing. Began today, continues tomorrow and Wednesday uh, for social distancing purposes. As you can see, a lot of extra safety precautions being made. Also, uh, you are required to have an appointment. Uh, so head on over to the uh, San Diego Blood Bank website to make your appointment and uh, try and get things all figured out from that perspective. Again, that continues tomorrow and Thursday. Really important uh, in a normal year, even more so this year, and also the time of year in which that is so critical. San DiegoBloodBank.org uh, to get your info and make your appointment. Uh, coming up tonight on Fox Sports San Diego, just about a half hour from now, AJ, one of my absolute favorite games of uh, 2019, Chris Paddock and Pete Alonso. I know it's the Padres and the Mets, but really, Chris Paddock and Pete Alonso. Yeah, and, and Chris Paddock won pretty decisively, not just against Pete Alonso, but he, he shut down the Mets as a team. I, I don't remember the exact number of strikeouts. You know what? Watch the game. You can figure it out that way. Uh, but he was locked in, and Chris Paddock was locked in a lot in 2019. He was locked in for a lot of his starts, but I think this was probably the most locked in I've, I saw Chris Paddock. There was also that that Dodgers start after he had struggled. There was that Marlins start when he was going back to, to the team that drafted him. I will take this one as the game where he was as locked in as as any pitcher can get because Chris Paddock, generally speaking, is a pretty locked in guy. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, he took a no hitter deep in Miami, and this was cooler to me, even though obviously Padres had never had a no hitter and he had a very legitimate flirtation with it. But this was early in the season. You had sort of all the other, you know, talk that had gone around with it and was like, oh, yeah, Chris Paddock's the real deal. And, uh, Fun one for sure. Certainly it'll be fun to hop back in the time machine tonight, just about a half hour from now. And uh, everybody was into it, including his brother, Michael. Sit down, meet. Alonzo's all geeked up for that, probably to his detriment. All right, that's uh, that's it for today. AJ, thanks, man. This was fun. Just the two of us hanging out. Yeah, it was good. I'm just, I, I keep coming back to, like with all this labor talk that's going on, I just want, I just want baseball. And when we get that and when we talk about some bunt with guys on first and second and no one out in the 10th inning. And that's like an actual talking point. I I'm, I'm going to savor that normally some of that stuff might drive me crazy, but I'm just going to savor that so much when we, when there is baseball and baseball things to be talked about. Yeah. As much as I enjoy having that conversation involving the whiz and the wyverns, I will much more appreciate it when it's the Padres and the Dodgers. So hopefully soon. How about them whiz? Uh, thanks to everybody for hanging out and joining us uh, to Greg Garcia, also Todd Zolecki. Uh, if you missed any of the interviews or any of the shows, you can always go back and watch. Uh, thanks again to everybody for hanging out. There is a very empty Petco Park, hopefully not fully empty for too much longer. Have a good night, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow at 530.